Hello, and welcome to the ACRO Files. The American College of Real Estate Lawyers was founded in 1978 by 18 practitioners who got together and decided that they would um, share experiences and resources and, and build a terrific organization that has now been around for 40, almost 45 years. In this series of podcasts, we are speaking to founders and senior fellows who um, were at the college at or near the very beginning um, and have um, been important uh, members of the college over its lifetime. Today, my guest is Morton Fisher, my good friend, Morty Fisher, um, and we're very happy to have him join the group of people that we've been interviewing. So Morty, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to, uh, welcome to this um, um, series that we're, we're working on. Um, and before we um, talk about ACRO, uh, I'd like to sort of take a step back and, um, and, and have you share some stories about your background, some of which I know, since we've known each other for a long time. But uh, tell us a little bit about uh, growing up in Baltimore and, and what that was. I'm now 85. People ask me if I'm from Baltimore all my life, and I say not yet. I was born in Baltimore, and I lived here. I remember best as a child, uh, the war years when my father was away for four years and, uh, and, and, and going through that experience. I missed the depression. Uh, I stayed in Baltimore, went to high school in a Baltimore County high school, and it was not accredited, but somehow I made an application to Dartmouth College and for some unknown reason, they accepted me. And uh, of course, I spent four years freezing my butt off in New Hampshire. Uh, I still don't like cold weather. And uh, after uh, four years at Dartmouth, uh, another school accepted me much to my uh, uh, surprise and that was Yale Law School. And I spent of course, three years in New Haven and uh, and frankly, it was probably the easiest and most enjoyable three years during that period, because it really wasn't that hard. Uh, but in any event, after I graduated from uh, uh, Yale Law School, I never intended to come back to Baltimore, although my family was from here. My father then worked in Washington. And... Uh, Quite to my surprise, again, the chief judge of the United States District Court for the District of Maryland, a wonderful judge by the name of Rosal Thompson, asked me uh, if I would be his law clerk. And that was something which I could not refuse. So the first year that I was back in Baltimore, uh, I was a, a law clerk to Judge Thompson. We had some very, very interesting cases. One of the most memorable was the antitrust case when the American Football League sued the National Football League. And that case went on for several weeks. And I'll never forget the famous antitrust lawyer, Milton Handler came down to be an expert witness. And the judge said to him, don't tell me how to apply the law in my court. So he made sure he was the expert. In any event, the case was decided and it led to the merger of the AFL-NFL, although the NFL won the case. Uh, after that, uh, I joined a firm. I was the 29th lawyer at a very small firm called Piper and Marbury, 
which is now 3,200 lawyers. Yeah, I think I heard it. I was 29. And uh, so I guess the firm grew, even though I didn't stay there uh, as a result of my early years. My father used to laugh because James Piper's name, who was retired, was undermined as an associate on the stationery where they listed everybody's names then. So I spent a few years at the Rouse Company. In the How many years did you spend after law school and after clerking in, in, in your first job at Piper? Uh, about four, four or five years. And what made, what made you sort of think about doing something different and going over to that? Well, I'm glad to mention that. I love real estate from the beginning. At Yale Law School, we had a wonderful seminar with a man by the name of Ed Logue, who was head of the New York Redevelopment Agency and was the great guru of redevelopment, which had just started its cities in that time. And New Haven was undergoing redevelopment. And uh, after taking his seminar, I just decided that real estate was something that I was very interested in and wanted to be a part of as downtowns were renewing themselves and uh, suburban areas were growing. So thanks to Ed Logue, uh, I became enamored with real estate. When I first got to Piper, I defended the Travelers Insurance Company as insurance cases. And uh, it's lucky I didn't cut my throat or commit suicide because I couldn't really enjoy doing that. And uh, after about two years there, they switched me to real estate, which I was interested in. And I worked for a young partner by the name of Matthias J. DeVito. Oh, Matt DeVito. He, he was a classic and he went out to be the first general counsel of the Rouse Company. And Jim Rouse was by any stretch of the imagination, the most imaginative developer that probably ever lived in this country or, or worked in this country. And it was Jim who really uh, first started as a mortgage banking business, then went into the enclosed mall shopping center business and, uh, and then decided to go into the downtown revitalization business, which I will spend a little bit more time about in a second. But in any event, Matt went out to be general counsel and he enticed me to come out. And, and although in the beginning, I did not hold that title, I became associate general counsel and was in charge of all the redevelopment uh, properties of the Rouse Company. Uh, I'll come back to some of my experiences in a minute, but I stayed there for seven or eight years and then uh, the, a general counsel, Matt became president and a general counsel came on board uh, with whom I was not exactly copacetic. And so I left and uh, decided to go back to practice uh, with a firm called Frank Bernstein, which uh, unfortunately closed its doors in one of the real estate recessions in 1992, although the lack of real estate work was not the problem. And then that firm, my entire real estate department went to Ballard Spar, 
where I stayed until I retired. But going back to the Rouse Company and my experiences there, uh, I worked on shopping malls pretty much around the country and led me to write a recent article not published about why uh, regional shopping malls are dying at a tremendous rate and will continue to do so. The, my most favorite project that I ever worked on was the renewal of Faneuil Hall Marketplace in Boston. And Jim's absolute innovation to take three old buildings that had not been used for 150 years and make them into a trophy property. And I spent the better part of a year and a half in Boston negotiating with the Boston Redevelopment Authority, uh, getting into deals that were difficult. Teachers decided not to close the loan on the project because they found out that the basements of Faneuil Hall flooded twice a day and they were worried about that. Well, we found an expert that said if the basement didn't flood twice a day, all the buildings would fall down uh, because they were that old. But that was my uh, favorite project. But and so then, when you got when you got to Rouse, so they were just beginning. It sounds like to build these festival marketplaces and Daniel well, Hall. Uh, it, they first started with malls. The first big mall. I worked on was a mall called Willowbrook in Northern New Jersey. Sure. It was the first five department store mall in the United States. And working in New Jersey uh, was quite an experience in the first place. As uh, I think Woody Allen said in Sleeper, when he was asked if God governed the universe, he said, yes, except for Northern New Jersey. But just be careful, Marty. That's where I'm from now. So just be careful. I know Willowbrook. Well, in any event, and then I worked on malls pretty much around the country. My favorite deal, then Jim got into the revitalization business of downtowns with Faneuil Hall, uh, which led to uh, Harbor Place in Baltimore, which really uh, rejuvenated Baltimore, which I also worked on. My least favorite project of all times was a project that we never did in Flint, Michigan. And none other than Bill Dunn, who I may have been the last guy you spoke to, was my local counsel. And I threatened to fire him if he could not fire, find me a good restaurant in Flint. And uh, he was unable to do that. So the project failed. But uh, in any event, uh, so I've worked on a number of revitalization projects. Unfortunately, many of them have not withstood time and even Harbor Place now in Baltimore is in receivership. And, uh, but, but these projects really led to the renewal of, of the American cities, which Jim was interested in. Let me say a word about Columbia. Columbia, Maryland is now the second biggest city in Maryland with 120,000 people. When we started, there was nothing there. It, it had a two lane road and Jim assembled over 20,000 acres. And that led to another quick story. I was a young associate at Piper when the land was being acquired 
and I bought a $5 million piece of land. They didn't tell me what it was for or where the money came from. And Dunning Bradstreet called me the next day, said, we hear you bought this land. How much money's in your checking account? And I looked it up and I said, $872. And uh, I've never heard from Dunning Bradstreet again. But in any event, Jim's experiment with Columbia was much more than the building of a city. It was one of the greatest social experiences of, of its age. First of all, it was the first really integrated community in Maryland. And Jim insisted on that. And that was his mindset. But in addition, he decided that it would not be a place where you had to drive everywhere to go to work. And so there were, so it was planned to have not only residential, but business and, you know, shopping. And, uh, and it was really a planned community. And the zoning was completely unique. It was the first what you call floating zone in the United States that I know of. That is to say, individual properties were not zoned. The entire community was under one zoning with limitations on when and where you could put certain types of uses, whether it be residential, so-called industrial, which is now uh, more flex type space. So it was very unique in many respects. And uh, today it, it, it is picked as one of the best places to live in the United States. And, and Columbia, Columbia predated Reston, right? No, Reston started first. Reston was first, okay. But, but Reston was never really a complete city the way Columbia turned out to be. I'm not trying to compare the two. I don't know that much about Reston, but it was not a planned city. Uh, and yeah. uh, uh, so they, they were different. Reston started first. Incidentally, Columbia is now uh, about to redo its center uh, to, to, to to go vertical, <laughs> and the time has come after 60 years. Rather interestingly, Columbia has no government of its own. It's part of Howard County. It has no mayor, no elected officials, and it is entirely governed by covenants which were put on the properties at the time it was formed. So, so where, where was the Rouse headquarters when you started? It was before the white building on the lake, of course. It, 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 the, it, the first headquarters was in one of the first very small plan unit developments in a wonderful, very small development called Cross Keys, which still exists in Baltimore. And I was in a little office building right on the Jones Falls Expressway and whenever it flooded, I had to abandon my office for about two weeks until they uh, got it. But then when Columbia uh, came into being, uh, they moved the headquarters to Columbia and uh, had a beautiful building on the lakefront, which uh, unfortunately is now a Whole Foods market. Well, fortunately or not, or unfortunately, it's just all right. part of the chain, right? Um, so... So just briefly, I mean, you just alluded to this. You've, you've got years and years of experience in the mall, festival marketplace, urban development, right. and all that kind of stuff with Rouse and everything else you did in your, your long and accomplished career. You, you, you intimated that 
the regional mall situation, which we've all read about and watched have enormous challenges the last several years, is going to be very slow to recover. So tell, tell us why, what your view on that is. Well, to, to put it in a nutshell, it's not going to recover in the same way. Uh, it, for many reasons. First of all, when I worked on enclosed malls, we always had local department stores. In Maryland, it was Hutzler's, Woodward & Lothrop in Washington, Rich's in Atlanta, Kaufman's in Pittsburgh. None of those store chains exist anymore, uh, or, or virtually none. Nordstrom has survived and a few, but the, the, the department store industry is so changed. Instead of dealing with eight or nine department stores, there are only two or three that are left, uh, and some of them are struggling. It was at a time before uh, we had uh, Walmart and Target, and it was before the time we had e-commerce. And I'll never forget going to an, an International Council of Shopping Centers convention. And when I chaired it, I wanted to put on a uh, seminar. This was years and years ago on e-commerce. And at that time, ICSC said it was only a rounding error in the amount of business that was going to be done. Well, uh, that turned out not to be the case. The other thing that's dooming in closed malls is, of course, a lot of the chain tenants that inhabited in the malls no longer exists. So I, in my own view, the strong companies, and there are three or four left, will be able to recycle them for residential and other uses and you know health clubs and other things that survive. But the, uh, now the problem in many cases is when an enclosed mall, which is the main tax benefit to a small town, closes. It's not only, it's like a factory closing, you know, in a town. So uh, I, 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 I think that shopping uh, habits have so changed that there will only be uh, a relatively few left and they will be recycled. Uh, let me, let me say another thing about my career. Nobody ever had more fun than I did. And if I could recommend to young lawyers what to do, make sure you're having fun. And it, it was such a pleasure to be working on wonderful projects with wonderful people. And I so enjoyed what I did. Many people cannot say that about their livelihoods. And, uh, and I think one of the things that helped me, although people always said to me, how did you get your clients? And the answer was, I don't know. I wouldn't come to me if I were me, but uh, some of them did. But I never took myself too seriously. And uh, I have, still a, a very good friend and client that I consult with that came to my class at, at law school and somebody said, well, how did Fisher handle this great big deal? And he said he told dirty jokes until they forgot that they were mad at each other. And uh, pretty much that is the truth. So that's the way I kind of looked at, at what I did. So I had a very, very good time. Good. So well, let's 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 talk a little bit about Acrol. Um, you were, I think, in the class of 1981. 
I was in the second class. I, and I was I, I was not in the found. I was not one of the founders, but I came in the minute they had their 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 first election. So so what what was it like? I'm sure because you were doing deals in around the country, as you said, and you were active, you know, in the in the ABA real property. You must have known a bunch of people there. But what what's what made Acro attractive to you and a lot of these other terrific people that we all got to work with? Well, uh, place to be. Well, first of all, I'm one of the few people left that remembers Fred Lane, who really founded Acro. And Fred Lane was the consummate lawyer. And as you said in your introductory remarks, he founded Acrel because he found being chair of the ABA section did not give him the latitude to, to, to do what he wanted to do. To be, to, uh, there were just thousands of people in the section and he wanted a smaller group that really was made up then of people who were interested in scholarship and teaching as well as simply business getting. So he formed Acrel with those of us who really thought so much of the profession that we wanted to be professional lawyers, not only uh, from the standpoint of making a living. And, uh, and so, uh, and I, loved Acryl for a number of reasons. Number one, it, it's always has been and still is the cutting edge real estate group in the country. One must remember nothing I learned in law school really give, gave me any benefit years later or now as to what I learned. There wasn't any environmental law. Tax laws were entirely different. And many of the uh, 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 of the issues that and finance was in Neanderthal compared to what it is now. There was no securitization collateral, none of this. So Acryl by, by staying ahead of the game really has been cutting edge. The other thing that Acryl did for me is it gave me lifelong friends throughout the United States. Many of the people that you are interviewing became close friends, Steve Callan, uh, Bill Dunn, John Hollyfield, whom I'm sure you will uh, uh, be talking to. And these are still friends that I still talk to and still manage to help keep up with sort of what's going on in the world. And they each contributed in their own way, Bill Dunn principally, uh, took the lead in creating what's called the Opinions Accord, which was a great breakthrough in real estate opinions, which without him uh, probably would not have occurred. So we have been leaders in the profession. And, uh, and, and I hope that looking forward that we continue to take people who are leaders in the profession as well as simply successful in their uh in their practices so contrast so look you spent uh, uh, you know the last phase of your career at what became a very strong national law firm at ballard um right. and of course went back in 1981 and 80 when 
early 80s when these movers and shakers like the guys you mentioned and John Gose and Howard Kane and, and Hetledge and a whole bunch right. of others, there weren't any national law firms, right? There, was, there were maybe some, maybe some strong regional firms, but they were mostly local law firms. That and, is correct. And as you said, you were doing deals around the country. Right. So that's not the situation today, of course, where you've got, you know, a pretty, you know, significant group of firms that have offices spread around the country, not just yours and mine, but lots of others like Greenberg, Dentons, you know, plenty of them. How would you, you know, compare, contrast sort of what the situation was back then and, and also back then and how does Ackrell serve such an important role today when so many of the lawyers have offices around the country? Well, uh, let me start. In the beginning, in the early 60s, real estate department, real estate lawyers in most major law firms were second-class citizens. They read titles, they did, did closings, but, they, but, but real estate departments as we know them really only came into being when developers like Rouse entered the scene and when we started to revitalize our cities and, 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 and build new cities and suburbias and downtown. So the real estate uh, departments grew up as the industry grew. The other thing, of course, that affected the real estate industry was the great advancements in financings. When it started off, uh, you had SNLs and and banks that made loans. After that, you graduated to the larger uh, insurance companies and pension funds, uh, which made permanent loans after construction loans from banks, and then. Of course, we went on to securitization. Well, that took a great deal more specialization in law firms. And uh, because real estate lawyers, in a sense, are general counsels for a project where they need tax advice, where they need environmental advice, where they need entity creation devices. So the departments grew around law firms that could support them. And I think now, as we're entering even a more global market, I think that becomes even more important. But where Acryl uh, is so important is there's somebody in Acryl that knows the answer to everything. And as long as you know the right person to call, if it's on securitization, I can pick up the phone and call Joe Forte. If it's about an opinion, if I'm doing a deal in Texas, which is not part of the United States in some respects, I'm just kidding, I call John Hollyfield. So the, the contacts that I made were much more important. Of course, we traded business, but that was not the chief motivation for me, or I think most of the professional lawyers. It was to stay on top of the game and be able to rely upon somebody who was cutting edge in the industry, in the real estate industry. And the really good lawyers know the business of their client as well as the legal problems which uh, they encounter. And I think Acryl has stressed that uh, in a number of different ways. 
and I include you too. I've called you for advice. Incidentally, one of the great deans never ran ACRIL. He never ran the ABA section, which I did. He never ran the ICSC. And he's a former partner of yours, Howard Kane, now in his 90s. But Howard was the go-to guy when you needed a judgment call on something. It wasn't the law that applied. In fact, we always laughed that he invented at a seminar what's known as clogging of the equity of redemption. He, he went through some dialogue and it had never been heard of before, but after Howard invented it, it's now a legal problem. But Howard is one of the great deans that I don't think has gotten enough maybe recognition in the industry. But Acryl is full of people like that. And, uh, and, 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 but it is those relationships and what I fear in the world as we're coming ahead is that those relationships now that we're not traveling and meeting as much are going to break down as we go into the future where so much is done by email and, and, and so forth. When we had a closing, years and years ago, it was like in the grand hall of, a, of an estate in, in Britain. The room would be full of people, and then I have to tell you a funny story in a minute, but uh, of title companies and, and lender lawyers and developer lawyers. Now you just close by mail or by FedEx. Uh, one of the great closings I had was in Philadelphia and I had this young associate with a great shock of red hair and I sent him out to uh, get some documents signed around the corner and he was back an hour and a half later and I said, Richard, what the hell happened to you? Where are my documents? He said, I got hit by a bus, <laughs> and, uh, which he had <laughs> and I told him, how are the documents? <laughs> and they were fine and he was fine. But those closings were fun. And usually we all went out for a nice dinner. And, uh, you know, and, and I solved many more problems at a bar sometimes than in a conference room. So, yeah, right. Well, what, what we don't have, and whether we'll get back to that stuff, I think remains to be seen, right? You, you've heard you know, Jeff Newman talk about in his negotiation strategy and right. looking about, you know, observing people's body language and making right, sure. Right. Well, that's important. Right. And, and, and all that stuff that Amy Cuddy talks about um, on, uh, on TED Talk. So I think those are real challenges for the next generation of people. Um, so, you know, let you, in addition to ACRIL, of course, and being the president of ACRIL, you're one of this small group, I think, of really um, amazing people who were led both ACRIL, led ICSE, led Rippity, led RP. Um, how would you, you know, compare those different kinds of organizations and, and you know, why ACRO was really, and you said it in a few different ways, but, but my recollection of my early ICSC meetings were, was you and Dick running out after the first day of ICSC to go to ACRO when we were not as well coordinated on, 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 um, on schedules. Well, uh, uh, number one, the real property section, which had 32,000 members when I chaired it. And we did a survey and uh, over half our members were really not firm. We think of big firm lawyers, 
but over half our section were with firms of five or less lawyers. And, and it was, and the ABA was very important. The reason it was the real property probate and trust law section was almost all of our lawyers did closings on residential properties, wrote wills and handled estates. And that's how it got to be the section the way it did and it never separated. So you were dealing with, with, with many, many people across the United States uh, who, who needed to be part of an organization. But most of those lawyers, the great majority were not required to deal with the cutting edge types of legal problems, which the members of ACRL uh, had to deal with. And, and they were not in the position to be inventive as the world went forward of, of different, take the reciprocal easement agreement of a shopping center, which was in its baby form, you know, and how that emerged and, and financing and HOAs and condominiums. Well, so, so you can't compare the two. The ICSC of course is related solely to the shopping center industry. And, and there you got a lot more of the lawyers who represented the tenants and, and, and the smaller strip center owners. And they were all wonderful organizations, ARPI, which is the Anglo-American Real Property Institute. Uh, we had the benefit of somebody like Tony Downs, who was the head of real estate at, uh, at Brookings. Brookings. Uh, I, I, I mean, uh, and I'll never forget, uh, Tony was the only expert that I ever knew that kept a joke book, literally. Uh, and of course, he was very funny. And, uh, but he was also brilliant. And he brought a dimension. Uh, and and Acrel is doing the same thing. And uh, when you look at the programming, which I still look at, although I'm not practicing anymore, whatever's new on the block, we will have a program at the very next session. And we all know, in fact, in an article I'm trying to write for Mark Sen's book, I'm predicting that in 30 years, we'll be debating how to divvy up property rights on the moon. And you think that's far-fetched, but it isn't as far-fetched as we think. Well, ACRO will be the first organization that will understand how to do that and probably send one of us to the moon, uh, doubt whether it'll be me. So, uh, so each of them has an important role to play in its own sphere. And I don't mean to put one, but, but you know, I'm gonna say something which may not sound right, but ACRO is an elitist organization in terms of its professionalism and its cutting edge. And I fervently hope that we can kind of keep it that way because, and, and, and I think the fact that its size is relatively limited and that we take people who I hope are devoted to the profession more than they simply wanna have uh, a marketing tool uh, will continue. So I don't know. So I, 
just I would just turn around what you said just a tad, right? It's not it's not that we're an elitist organization. It's we are an elite organization, right? Right of, of the best and the brightest. That is and right and 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 but it's more none of us are brighter than anybody else. It's the people that care about the profession and where it's going and the professionalism, which I hope does not get lost as we move forward. Right. So yeah. let's go back. Go back to Rouse for a minute, because one person we haven't talked about yet was your your very very close friend and and the friend of many of ours, of course, Dick Goldberg, um, who you I assume was at Rouse when you got there. And well, no, course, he, no, no, he was not at Rouse. Oh. I hired him to go to Rouse. Oh, I didn't know that. And I, so, I hate to tell you why and how. I knew him beforehand because we were in a carpool. But I went to solicit his Associated Jewish Charities pledge card, and he gave me a hundred bucks. And we were looking for someone to handle the management side. I was in charge of development. So I hired Dick. Now, if you talk to Dick, he probably would have put it the other way, maybe rest in peace. And then when Dick left Rouse, of course, he came to Ballard where I already was. And uh, we were sort of like the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, it, 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 so we were a team in many respects and I miss him terribly. He was a great leader and, uh, and uh, unfortunately uh, he, 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 he left us too soon. Way, way too soon, but talk about, nobody was more proficient, I think, in, in sharing his knowledge and experiences for all of us Talk a little bit about how Dick was made such an impact across all those organizations, Aliaba, you know, everything. Well, Dick was one of a kind. And, and he loved Aliaba, he loved doing courses and teaching other people. And Dick really uh, kept himself abreast of what was going on. And he was such a, a great leader in, in the industry at all levels. And, uh, but he was exemplary of what I hope Acryl, you know, is and, and, uh, and, and will be. And so he, 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 was, he was a great friend and we worked together at Rouse. Again, I was in charge of development, legal development. He was in charge of management. And, uh, but we, of course, remain friends, you know, all of our lives. Pardon, so, me if, pardon me if you hear a dog barking in the background. That's okay. So we've talked a little bit about, you know, wh where Ackle's been, where it is today. What, what would your advice be to the, the we've been very successful in, in admitting lots of really good people the last several years. We've lowered our average age. We've done better. Can always do more on gender and diversity, but well, what would your advice be to the, the next generation of ACRO members? Well, number one, it, it, this advice goes all the way back, you know, number one, understand that the collegiality of ACRO is as important as the education of ACRO. And, you know, going to the meetings is different been talking on Zoom as much as I understand the need for Zoom. And so much happens where people get to know each other. And I hope that that will continue. 
and ACRA will be able to move forward, you know, in that. Uh, I have a couple key points that have nothing to do with necessarily ACRA. The one thing that I insisted on when I ran the Baltimore Ballard office in any organization was to return every phone call every day. And I think lawyers maybe are forgetting about that. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and I think they're beginning to, to, or I hope they're still understanding that caring for the client is the most important thing that you have to do for a client. And ACRL stresses that too. And uh, so I think that they are uh, uh, ahead of the game in making sure that we are ahead of the game. Yeah, well, I think that's a good point because as we've evolved ACRL, right, we, we're not just focused on traditional um, legal developments. We're always focused on cutting edge, but we've also with the practice and technology committee and, and other committees like that have tried to talk about how to be better professionals. That, um, is, that is correct. And as, as, as Dick said, you know, everybody who's invited to the dance, whether it's at ACRL or whether it's to pitch business is presumed to be very smart. The question is how you set yourself apart. I think that's right. I, I don't think there's a difference necessarily in the brain power of the people in ACRL so much as there is, is their attitude towards the profession, which is what makes it, I think, uh, the organization that it was and hopefully will continue to be. Okay, great. So I've got two last questions for you, which we, we've been asking each of the distinguished people that we've been talking to. And, and the first one, you sort of you sort of alluded to part of this, but when you said you gotta have fun and be happy when you're practicing law, well, given your, 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 all your experiences and looking back now from your current perch, what would you have advised yourself and when you were 25, given everything that you now know? Well, first of all, to, you talk, one of your points was about family and practice. As hard as I worked doing everything that I did, I took two to three weeks vacation every year with my family. And I insisted on that. I might return telephone calls when I was on vacation, like you returned calls. We didn't have emails. I liked a kid in grade school, I had an email, it was called a pencil. And uh, I mean, a, a computer, but, but I, my family always came number one. And if I had to work until midnight and have dinner with my family and bring work home, I did it. Uh, I forget the, the, the second part of your question. So, well, so you know, that, that's an important point. What, what, what would you tell yourself, you know, looking back over well, six years, you know, that your family's important, have fun? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, if I had a defect as a real estate lawyer, I should have learned more tax uh, because okay. it was such an important part of what I did. And I, I, even though my father was a judge of the tax court of the United States, I only learned tax at the dinner table. And I wish I had learned more tax and I wish that I broadened out. The other thing, unfortunately, if I had to look back now that I'm retired was I worked so hard, I cared about my family, but I really didn't develop enough hobbies. 
I played tennis, I played squash. I never quite made it with golf. So when I came to retire, I really didn't have a mindset as to what I was gonna do. Because when you retire, and this is a lesson for the people coming along, once you're put out to pasture by a law firm, you're out and you have to have a new life. And I don't think I was prepared for that. And I know Acryl is working on this, but as Acryl is getting older, it is vitally important to me that Acryl pay attention to the graying of, of its membership and how people in every other society in the world, age has been a great, wonderful thing. In this country, you feel a little bit like an old refrigerator. Right. I think it, it's important that Acryl focus on helping us as we move along in our careers to get ready. And because many of us are gonna have a number of careers, unlike uh, the old tradition, you went to a law firm and just stayed there. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Okay, My, that does. My last question is, if you didn't go to New Haven um, and spend time at that venerable institution up there, what other profession would you, do you think you would have chosen? Professional tennis. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know, the dean of the Yale Law School, a great friend of mine, Guido Calabresi, he's not dean anymore. All he wanted to be was commissioner of baseball. He didn't want to get on the Supreme Court. And so I would have loved to have done something like that. I never was particularly interested in becoming a business person in the sense of a Wall Street. I think the other thing that I missed, except for my clerkship, was not the opportunity to do more public service, although I served on a number of boards of directors. And let me mention one in particular is a school called the Seed School in Baltimore. There's several around the country where we bring in as a boarding school, people of poverty and whose parents are in jail and, and they all go to college when we get done with them. Well, I wish I'd had more time or spent more time doing things like that. Okay, yeah, that's the Seed School is a wonderful, wonderful organization. We've been involved in it with Mitch Rails in DC, our client, good friend. Oh well, oh, I forgot. He well, there wouldn't be a Baltimore school without the money that he put up. Uh, that's great. Uh, All to, right, well, Maury, this has really been a wonderful um, reflection on a career that is unparalleled. And well. Thank Thank you for everything you've done for the college and everything that you've shared, both not just today, of course, but over your years for, for lots of us who helped us all become much better lawyers. Let me, let me thank you for not only doing this series of podcasts, but for helping us to move into the future. Obviously, if any of us could know what the future was, we'd be in the Smithsonian Institute or somewhere. But it's so important that the college continue to adapt as life changes as it, as it will at an increasing rate. And I thank you for this opportunity. And uh, as always, I enjoyed speaking with you. Thanks, Morty. Thank you, bye-bye.